Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. A controversial plan in Boston is aimed at giving opioid addicts a safe place to use drugs. People are already injecting publicly all over the place. We all know that. It's just not supervised. There's no people making sure folks aren't dying. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll listen to the debate over that plan and explore an addiction treatment organization in New Hampshire that's facing its own challenges. We'll also go to ground zero of a border war between New England states over gambling and tourism with the future of a struggling city in the balance. People, when they start talking about where they're going to go for vacation, what I'm envisioning is somebody saying, let's go to Springfield. Plus a trip to the pool with kids who've never taken the plunge and scientists play capture the queen to help solve the problem with our bee population. Oh, wonderful. There she goes. Ooh, she's busy. Look at her run. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Over the past few years, New England has been grappling with an opioid crisis, and New Hampshire has been hit especially hard. The state estimates that more than 1,600 people have died from opioid overdoses since 2011. Peer support centers, places where people trying to get clean work with counselors with previous experience of addiction, have been key players in New Hampshire's fight against this epidemic. A nonprofit called Hope for New Hampshire Recovery is the largest such organization. But their growth from one modest space in Manchester to seven recovery centers statewide hasn't gone smoothly. Several employees have quit, claiming they were mistreated. There are allegations the staffers used and at times sold drugs at work. One center is closed. New Hampshire Public Radio's Paige Sutherland has more. When Hope for New Hampshire Recovery moved into its new flagship space in Manchester this past December, top names in local and state politics attended the ribbon-cutting, including newly elected Governor Chris Sununu. Thank you. Um, Thank you guys very much. Uh, Look, I I do want to take this moment and just also recognize some of the other folks. Uh, Mayor Gatsis, Chief Willard, uh, Governor Hassan, of course, um, Senator Del Sandro, Senator Susie. Uh, also there was top backer Andy Cruz. He's the president and CEO of Auto Fair Automotive Group and also the husband of Hope board member and former chair Melissa Cruz. Over the years, the pair has given tens of thousands of dollars in contributions to state political candidates. Hope's growth has been fueled by both private and public money, including nearly half a million dollars in state contracts last year. But many who've worked with Hope say the organization has struggled to deliver what it promised. I talked with more than half a dozen former Hope employees. They gave similar accounts of an organization where staff oversight was minimal, employees were encouraged to fudge numbers, and bullying was a common leadership style. Michelle Parento is one of those former employees. I could not continue to work with a company that was unethical, that literally did not care about its employees, and really didn't care about the members coming in. Parento resigned from Hope in February after working as a recovery coach for eight months at the Claremont Center. 
Since then, she's filed official complaints with state and county regulators. In them, she describes being verbally abused and bullied by Hope's leadership. She claims management failed to assist her in dealing with drug use at the center and incidences of sexual harassment. Parento, who's been in recovery for six years, says some of her fellow coaches were hired with as little as 30 days of sobriety. This, she said, led to high staff turnover and dysfunction at some of Hope's centers. The centers are never consistent. It's always changing. Meetings are always changing. Some days it was closed, some days it was open, and they're just hiring anyone. She and others I spoke with tied a lot of problems to former executive director Holly Sakala. Parento says Sakala pushed employees to become certified recovery support workers, something required in order to allow Hope to bill insurance companies. But Parento says Sakala signed off on that certification for her and others without actually doing the necessary supervision. And I needed 500 hours supervised in order to get that. And within two weeks, they gave me my 500 hours. I mean, I'm no mathematician, but I'm assuming 500 hours should take (laughs) months. A few months, (laughs) at least. I mean, 40 hours a week. Sakala would not comment for this story. She was removed last month from the top job at Hope, but she still works for the organization, managing its hospital and insurance contracts. Kim Shepard says she had similar experiences as a manager at the Concord and Franklin Centers. She and others I talked to say they were told to inflate the number of people being helped at each center. Under its state contract, Hope was required to provide these headcounts. They were having staff people sign in, recovery coaches in training, the postal person. They were counting all the groups that that were conducted by AA or HA, or which had nothing to do. They were using the space. The organization was also awarded $25,000 from Sullivan County to run two centers in Newport and Claremont. But last month, when Hope sought more money, the county said no, citing what it called Hope's unclear financials. I reached out to Hope's board chair, Scott Bickford, to talk about these complaints and other issues. He said he couldn't talk because the complaints are confidential. But he said the board is, quote, treating these matters with the seriousness that they deserve. Former employee Dana Lemire says the problems at Hope for New Hampshire have been building for a long time. Lemire now runs a recovery house in Manchester. He says when he began working at Hope in November of 2015, he wondered how all these centers would stay afloat way, way over their heads. No business plan, no strategic plan, no forward-thinking capitalization plan. How are we going to do this? To launch something and then try to figure out how you're going to fund it is usually in the business world a formula for failure. You need to have your business planning a component of that. All that should be figured out and wired tight. Lemire says the organization meant well but just couldn't deliver. Former employees told me that some people in recovery have even stopped going to the centers because they feel unsafe. So far, the state has received at least four complaints from former Hope employees. Officials at DHHS declined to speak on tape about the organization, but a spokesman told me that the department, quote, takes its oversight responsibilities very seriously and is responding accordingly. That's Paige Sutherland reporting. After that story aired earlier this month, Governor Chris Sununu told reporters his administration was investigating allegations against hope for New Hampshire recovery, and the state has placed additional funding for the organization on hold. Holly Sakala, the manager who's the target of many allegations, has since left the organization.
You can read more and follow the story as it evolves at nhpr.org. The country's in the midst of a shift from treating people with drug addiction like criminals to treating them like patients. But even in this environment, an idea like the one being floated in Boston sounds pretty radical. Advocates want permission to open a facility where people could inject drugs under medical supervision. Now, Boston already has a place where drug users can come to ride out a high monitored by nurses, but no actual drug use is permitted at that site. Is Boston City's Council willing to take the next step, though, allowing illegal drug use inside a medical facility? Martha Biebinger has more. Passions ran high even before the hearing began. A redhead named Whitney, standing in line to sign in, described a crushing spinal injury that introduced her to morphine 30 years ago. Now, with fentanyl in most bags sold on the street, Whitney says she's overdosed 11 times since January. If Boston had a supervised injection facility, Whitney Gaines said she'd use it. It's horrible. I don't want to die, but I'm in pain. And I have to go into a porta potty and shoot up because I have nowhere safe to go. And I overdose. It's so sad. It's not right. Inside the chamber, a panel of supporters ticked off the reasons they say supervised injection facilities, or SIFs, are needed now. They reduce overdose deaths and increase referrals to treatment. Dr. Gabriel Wishick, an addiction specialist at the Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program, says there's no evidence SIFs encourage drug use. SIFs save lives. I think we desperately need that option here in Boston. City Councilor Frank Baker listened to similar testimony from four other doctors and public health specialists, but wasn't having it. I'm still not convinced by it, your testimony, no, like not even close, that it will be helpful. Baker says if the city did allow SIFs, the number of days for each drug user should be capped. I think it might be the wrong path to make it easier for using. It's almost like it should be more difficult to use. Can, you can, can I say yeah. something? Just sure. as, as Aubrey person. Esters is an active drug user who spends time every day in the blocks of Baker's district known as Methadone Mile. It's already an injection facility. People are already injecting publicly all over the place. We all know that. It's just not supervised. There's no people making sure folks aren't dying. But City Councilor Michael Flaherty is disturbed by the idea that doctors or nurses would supervise illegal drug use. We're going to watch them inject, snort, whatever, and we're going to sit by and wait to see whether we're going to jump in and render assistance. I think that is absolutely asinine. Flaherty says what the state needs is more treatment on demand. He says supervised injection rooms send the message to children and young adults that opioid use is a normal part of medical care. Some supporters of supervised injection facilities expected a boost after the Massachusetts Medical Society endorsed pilots, a few sites to test this approach to curbing the epidemic. But doctors were criticized again and again yesterday for taking that position. The Mass Medical Society should be ashamed of themselves. Sue Sullivan represents the Newmarket Business Association, whose members feel overrun by drug use. They should be ashamed of themselves because we have the best minds in the world here, and this is the best they can come up with. You've got to be kidding. The president of the Medical Society, Dr. Henry Dorkin, responded to Sullivan's comments after the hearing. I don't think doctors are ashamed of themselves for saving lives. And I don't think doctors would be ashamed of themselves for taking a look at all possible options in order to save lives. The Medical Society wants a statewide task force that would review evidence on supervised injection facilities. It would conduct a Massachusetts version of cost studies that have found SIFs save money with fewer deaths and less transmission of HIV and Hep C. On Beacon Hill, the Senate has approved creation of that task force. The House has not. 
That was Martha Biebinger reporting for WBUR. Laconia Motorcycle Week, which wrapped up Friday in central New Hampshire, prides itself on being the world's oldest motorcycle rally, 94 years and counting. But as the rally ages, so do the attendees. And as New Hampshire Public Radio's Casey McDermott reports, public health groups are seizing on this new chance to reach aging bikers in their element. Bruce Hopi of Newmarket has five decades of motorcycling under his belt. I got two bikes. Uh, a Goldwing Aspen K six-cylinder and a 1500 Vulcan uh, V-Twin Classic. Motorcycle Weeks changed a lot since he first started coming, more than 40 years ago. Less violence, uh, smarter people, I guess it comes with age. Something else that's new? As he made his way down the Weir's Beach boardwalk Saturday morning through rows and rows of bikes and t-shirt booths, he could also stop to talk with a street team from a pharmaceutical company that sells drugs for hepatitis C. They were at the rally for the first time ever, specifically because they wanted to reach baby boomers like him. They don't know that they have it. So we're here um, doing some outreach and helping to educate people about getting tested for hepatitis C. We have some information. Have you been tested? No, but I get a doctor's appointment. I've been already uh, looking into uh, hep C. Uh, I'm going to ask my doctor about it next time I see it. I've been planning that anyway, but... uh, But uh, I guess for somebody that doesn't know anything about it, it may be a good idea. The hepatitis C team wasn't the only one trying to bring a medical message to Motorcycle Week. Dee Daly with the New Hampshire Physical Therapy Association says her group's also been trying to be more creative about meeting potential patients where they are. We said we've never done this before and people think we're a little nuts, but we figured let's give it a try. They had a booth set up offering strength tests and also tried to give people information on how to find a physical therapist in case of injuries on the bike or otherwise. In treating bikers in the past, I've found that they are incredibly motivated to get back to doing things. And and that passion, it doesn't matter if it's returning to sewing or to motorcycles, it, it really is something that people care about. And if we can make their lives richer or contribute in any way to helping them get back to their goals, I don't know how we ever don't feel good about that. Just across the street, a team from the VA New England healthcare system was also set up with t-shirts, brochures, and laptops ready to enroll veterans in VA benefits right on site. We know from marketing research that a lot of owners of motorcycles are veterans. John Parody is an outreach specialist for the VA. Right now, a big group of veterans that we're really reaching out to are Vietnam veterans. And we see a lot of Vietnam veterans at uh, bike runs, bike rallies. By the end of the week, Parody says they enrolled more than 50 people in the VA health care system, many of whom were unaware they were eligible or unsure of how to connect with the services the VA offered. Jennifer Anderson's been involved in the Laconia Motorcycle Week Association for almost two decades. She says the shift in public health groups taking an interest in the rally is a recent phenomenon, only in the last few years. But it's welcome. Along with uh, gradual age changes comes gradual health changes, and I think companies are realizing that um, there's a lot of opportunity to spread awareness at different events, whether it's a motorcycle rally or a car show or something like that, to reach that population where they are congregated. As motorcycling sheds its image as a sport wrapped up in counterculture and continues to become more mainstream, Anderson says it only makes sense that rally vendors are starting to reflect wellness for the biker's whole life. 
not just while he or she's on the open road. That's NHPR's Casey McDermott reporting. Coming up, the scramble for New Englanders' gambling dollars continues. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. Back in April, we brought you the story of a cross-border gambling war. Construction was moving along at the site of a $950 million MGM resort casino in Springfield, Massachusetts. Meanwhile, two Native American tribes, both casino operators in Connecticut, were hoping to build a third casino in that state just 14 miles south of the MGM site in the town of East Windsor. The Mohegans, who operate Mohegan Sun, and the Mashantucket Pequots, who run Foxwoods, argued that if nothing was done, they'd lose customers to MGM, which would hurt not just the tribes, but also the state. MGM sued the state, claiming a deal between the state and the tribes would put them at a competitive disadvantage. Since our story aired, an appeals court has thrown out that MGM lawsuit, and Connecticut lawmakers approved that third casino. So it looks like that border war is heating up. We'll have more on the region-wide scramble for gambling dollars later. But first, let's revisit Springfield, where the resort casino by MGM spans three blocks in the city's downtown. It's set to open in the fall of 2018. Springfield and its downtown have struggled for decades, and two tornadoes that ripped through the area in June of 2011 made matters worse. The project's backers say the casino will bring in not only tax dollars, but needed foot traffic to downtown Springfield. The mood was pretty upbeat when we visited the MGM construction site at the end of March. Reporters and officials were milling around after a ceremony that was marking a milestone in the construction. I spoke with Mike Mathis, president of MGM Springfield. Hi. How are you? Good, thanks. Good. Hey, thanks, thanks, for, thanks for meeting us. Of course. Uh, what just happened there? Yeah, that was uh, the construction milestone of topping off the last sort of piece of uh, structural steel. And we put it on top of our signature rotunda hotel corner on Main Street in Howard. So it was an exciting moment. Uh, we had the, the mayor here, the local public officials, as well as looked like about a couple of hundred uh, iron worker carpenters. So we celebrated together. Maybe you can describe what all we're going to see here when all the walls are up. Yeah. So we're standing really in some ways the heart of the, the entire project. We're in the outdoor plaza. Um, in front of us will be the casino facility. Uh, to the right of it is the hotel tower. Uh, above it is the convention center, conference center. It sort of comes around to our left and integrates into our um, premium luxury movie theater. And then we'll have a uh, sports bar downstairs, as well as bowling alley and retail. Uh, and hard to ignore the castle-like building right behind me, which is the old state armory building, which, which will have some kind of uh, food and beverage programming that we're working on. How do you see the possibility of another Connecticut casino so close to this one impacting the business model that you have for what's being built right here? All I can do is make sure, regardless of the competition, that we build a really compelling experience. You can't deliver uh, Main Street Springfield in any of these other settings, and you can't deliver the MGM brand. An awful lot of people here 
in the surrounding area and in other cities say, you bring a, a casino into a city, you bring some of the problems that come with a casino. How have you looked to address some of the concerns that people have that there are gonna be people who don't have a whole lot of money and have been struggling uh, by that are gonna now have a place to you know, gamble away some of their very meager earnings. How do you balance those two things as you're trying to do this? We, we've got a lot of non-gaming um, experiences, and that's the that's what the locals have patted me on the back for. So um, the feedback we're getting from the folks are that we like what you're doing at the resort. We want a movie theater. We want a bowling alley. We want an outdoor plaza where we can bring our families. Um, if we if if some nights you want a game, then that's perfectly okay. We really want to change the concept of losing money in a casino to spending money on entertainment, and gaming is a piece of that entertainment, but it's not the only piece. After I wrapped up my talk with Mathis, Melvin Edwards joined me at the construction site. He's a lifelong Springfield resident and he's a city councilor. He says he was on board with the MGM proposal from the start. I've been desperate for jobs and for economic development and investment for many decades. So when the ideal of a casino came, I looked at it as an opportunity for to spur other types of investment and development in the area. Um, and out of all of the casinos you know, that were being proposed, this is the only one that was unique and different than what we traditionally get with a casino. From my knowledge of casinos, generally it's the box with a, no clock, lots of drinks, and they get you in the box and they take your money and you essentially, you know, when you have no money, money no more money, that's when you're done. What they were proposing was uh, a little bit different. And that uh, when I talked to the representatives from MGM, what they told me was for them to get the return on their investment they needed the whole area of Springfield, at least downtown particularly, to be changed in its perception of crime and safety. They had to make work and partner with the city in order to change the perception that people who wanted to spend tourist dollars in Springfield could come to downtown on Main Street and they would feel safe, they would have um, a great experience. With all the boarded up storefronts downtown, it's understandable that visitors might not feel safe on Main Street after dark. Edwards says Springfield can trace its industrial demise, his words, to the decision by Congress to close the National Armory there in 1967. The armory had been established in 1794. It's a point of Springfield pride to him. He tells me it was instrumental in the North winning the Civil War. After the armory closed, the city never recovered those jobs or its downtown. But Edwards sees potential. See, if you draw a 100-mile circle around Boston, more than half your circle would be in the water. If you drove, you drew a 100-mile circle around New Haven, Connecticut, about a third of your circle would be in the water. If you draw a 100-mile circle around Springfield, you'll hit three capital cities, and you'll hit one of the fastest-growing, smallest communities in, in Brattleboro, Vermont. So we could position ourselves to be a distribution hub, first of all, for the distribution of product, but further than that, we have such good bones that we could look back on our history and position ourselves as a tourist destination. All tourist destinations don't have to be beach and sand. Well, so one of the, the concerns that people have about uh, casinos sometimes is, A, they're gonna draw crime. People are gonna spend their money that maybe they don't have gambling it away. And the jobs that you create out of a project like this tend to be a lot of either retail jobs or lower level jobs in the service economy that maybe don't pay a whole lot and aren't as sustainable as some of the jobs that have gone away. When, when people talk to you about those concerns, what do you say to them? Well, I can't argue those points away. They're all valid and legitimate points. The majority of jobs that is going to be created after it's open will be cleaning glass, floors, and being in service, uh, making beds, those types of things. 
But when I looked at the proposal that for a casino to come, and I had multiple proposals to look at, this is the one that said, we will build a casino and we'll create so many construction jobs, which will be until we get open. But then we'll have two to 3,000 uh, support positions, but they'll pay a livable wage, which in, in this area has to be more than the $10 an hour minimum wage. And additionally, that there would be spinoff. That they would be able to tie the success of their casino to the other side of Main Street. We crossed over Main Street to peer in the windows of a spacious closed down restaurant with a marquee that still reads The Black Pearl. It turns out that Basketball Hall of Famer Magic Johnson's company is partnering with the local developer that owns that building to turn it into a Magic Johnson themed restaurant. So, so we walked by here before and I, I, I walked, this is the, like the bar that's closed down here? Yes. I, I looked in and I thought, what a great space. And the outside has the patio as well. That was, I had my first political event as an elected official there. Whenever I see a building like that, that has, it has great structural bones, it's got a space out back, like you said, there's a patio on the side. Look, there's a, there's a wood-burning oven back there. Yes, and it has a full kitchen, it has a bar, uh, a nice space, uh, you know, it has a drinking space, and then a little further back, there's like a space for larger crowds to gather, it's, you know, it used to serve good food. Um, now, the, any investment in this, this would have sat here vacant if it wasn't for MGM coming. But because MGMs, now you draw interest, and you draw interest from somebody who has a reputation of being successful. By the time the casino opens, the, uh, the thought is, is that you would be standing here. You would be able to see a police officer sitting in a booth down this way, and look this way and see also a police officer sitting in a booth. Mm. So the, that is the idea on how you're going to make it safe. And doing that, you can conceivably, and what I envision, People, when they start talking about where they're going to go for vacation, people here in Springfield probably can't see the woods or the trees because you're too close to it. But people could, could what I'm envisioning is somebody saying, let's go to Springfield. We can take the kids to Six Flags in the daytime. And at night, we can leave them in the hotel and we can go to the casino. MGM Springfield is one of three new casinos in the works in Massachusetts since the state law expanding gambling passed in 2011. That law was largely meant to keep Massachusetts residents from spending their gambling dollars in Connecticut. Casinos have been springing up across the Northeast in recent years. It's a stark contrast to 15 years ago or so when Mohegan Sun and Foxwoods were the only casinos in New England, competing only with Atlantic City for New York gamblers. So will there be any winners in this cross-border war? Is our small region nearing gambling oversaturation? Our next guest has made a career out of answering questions like these. Clyde Barrow researches gaming as a consultant for governments and private industry. He directed the Center for Policy Analysis at UMass Dartmouth, where he conducted the biennial New England Gaming Behavior Survey. Earlier this year, he produced several reports on behalf of MMCT, the joint venture between those Connecticut tribes. His research, which was presented to the Connecticut legislature, predicted that locating a third casino right on I-91 north of Hartford would result in more revenue than other locations the tribes were considering. He joins us from the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, where he teaches political science. Clyde, welcome to Next. Glad to be here. Well, why don't you tell us about the changes to the casino landscape of New England over the course of the last couple decades? I mean, it wasn't so long ago we just had a few tribal casinos, but now it seems things have really exploded. Tell us about the changes you see. 
Well, yeah, as you say, if we just look at New England, uh, New England alone has uh, expanded its gaming options considerably in the last few years. Uh, as you mentioned, it started off in 1992 with Foxwoods. Uh, 1996, uh, Mohegan Sun was fully operational. Twin River has grown dramatically. We now have two casinos uh, in the state of Maine, and Newport Grand in Rhode Island is about to relocate to Tiverton, Rhode Island, which is on the Massachusetts border. And then, of course, we have the Massachusetts Gaming Act, uh, which has added a small slot parlor in that state with uh, the provisions to add three large resort casinos, one of which will probably open sometime next year. Uh, so if you look at it in terms of the number of facilities, it's just really exploded over the last couple of decades, uh, although the overall size of the gaming industry in terms of revenues uh, is at this point uh, close to $3 billion per year. Okay, that $3 billion a year, a big question is, how, how much can it grow? The question has always been, is there the capacity in New England, in this broader region, to really sustain all the casinos that have been going up? Is there, is there room for more? Uh, I think that by the time Massachusetts builds out all the facilities that it has planned, you'll probably start to reach what we call a saturation point. Uh, but I think we were all a little bit surprised when Plain Ridge Casino opened in Massachusetts. The expectation was it would draw most of its revenues away from Twin River in Rhode Island, which is only about 20 miles away. Uh, but the reality is it, it suggests that something like 70% of their revenues have turned about to be new growth. That is, they've captured new revenue rather than simply capturing it from other casinos. So that suggests that there is still room for growth in New England overall. Is this trend happening across the country? Do you see other places where there's a growing and very crowded casino market? Yeah, absolutely. There, there are some markets that are clearly oversaturated. The Mississippi market is an example of, of one such market. They've actually had a casino close. The larger northeastern market, particularly around Atlantic City, has become oversaturated. At its peak, Atlantic City had 12 casinos. It's now down to seven. Uh, and then there are other markets that are approaching this, particularly in the Midwest, places like uh, St. Louis, Kansas City, uh, the Illinois and Midwestern markets. This is an issue that's being discussed in every region of the country. In this region of the country, the big controversy that we've been covering is about this casino uh, that MGM is building in downtown Springfield, Massachusetts. This downtown casino in Springfield is going to be, well, maybe not like what you see in Las Vegas, but it's going to have a, an awful lot of the types of amenities that one might expect in a full-service casino. Gambling floors, but also movie theaters and places to go see shows, etc., Meanwhile, the state of Connecticut is considering building a casino just down the street, just down I-91, to try to capture some of the revenue, the people who might be going north to that casino. Before we get into the back and forth and the dueling reports that are coming from these casinos, what do you think about this idea that you can have a, a downtown casino that might be a full-service one and that you might take business away from it by building a place where people can just go gamble? Yeah. Well, to understand the, the reasoning behind that, you have to first know that there are fundamentally two different types of gamblers in the United States. Uh, one type is what we might call just a resort casino gambler. Uh, these are people who seek entertainment. These are the type of people who are going to stay overnight in the hotel. They're going to play table games. They're looking for expensive gourmet dining. They maybe want to go shop to, at the retail outlets. 
The more common type of gambler is what we call a convenience gambler. This is somebody who just wants to go down to the slot machine, sit for two or three hours, and then go home. Now, convenience gamblers really view slot machines and table games as a commodity. They're all, they all look the same to them. So they're simply going to go to whichever casino is the closest to them. So the idea behind the third casino proposed uh, and now planned uh, for the state of Connecticut is to capture those convenience gamblers who currently go to Mohegan or Foxwoods because it's the closest casino to them. But if you put one in Springfield, they'll go there because now that's the closest one to them. But if you put something between them and Springfield, they'll stop there because it's closer and it's more convenient. The calculation that the two tribal casinos in southeastern Connecticut have made is that if this new casino in Springfield goes up and it is a resort casino, that it will draw away people from the greater Hartford area and also large parts of Massachusetts away from their existing casinos. Do you find that to be true? Would it indeed take business away from the two big tribal casinos that have been there uh, down in southeastern Connecticut for all these years? Oh, absolutely. Uh, In fact, we're all in agreement on that. Uh, My analysis indicates that 200 to $220 million per year uh, would come out of the greater Hartford area to an MGM Springfield casino if left unchallenged. Their own analysis, which they submitted uh, to the Massachusetts Gaming Commission as part of their plan, has a similar estimate. So everybody agrees on the amount of revenue that would be flowing out of Connecticut into MGM Springfield. The issue then is does Connecticut sort of sit still and allow that revenue outflow to continue, or does it do something to at least try to mitigate that outflow? Let's imagine a New England in which there weren't state lines, in which you didn't have to worry about uh, gamblers going from Connecticut to Massachusetts or Massachusetts to Rhode Island, and you just thought about what the market would actually bear. Would that change in any way your analysis of this if, if we were just looking at people going from place to place and not worrying about whether or not jobs or money was staying in one state or the other? Yeah, it absolutely would change the analysis. And as I suggested that once once Massachusetts builds out all of its proposed facilities, once the Rhode Island uh, facility relocates to Tiverton, you're probably at or close to the saturation point. So from a purely economic standpoint, you know, if I was sort of the the governor of all of New England, uh, I'd say let's quit issuing licenses at that point until we see how the market plays out. I I guess I'm wondering if you think that casino gambling is a good way to prop up a state budget for a a Connecticut, a Massachusetts, a Rhode Island, a Maine, or, or any other state. Well, it can be if it's done right, but but I do have uh, some concerns about the industry as a whole. And, and here I would suggest that state gambling policy really pursues two objectives, and, and states tend to give priority to one or the other. Uh, one is to raise revenue for the state. Uh, if your goal was purely to raise revenue for the state, you would put a slot machine in every convenience store, every bar, every restaurant, and you would generate lots of revenue from doing that. And there are some states more or less pursuing that policy, uh, Pennsylvania being an example. Uh, they went from zero to becoming the, the uh, second largest commercial gaming venue in, in the United States after Nevada in only six years. So they did generate a lot of revenue for the state. The other policy, though, which is the one that, that Massachusetts has pursued and, and Connecticut as well, is job creation. 
if you're going to pursue job creation, then you want to limit the number of casinos so that you can create these sort of big behemoths with the hotels, the table games, the entertainment venues, because it's really everything except the slot machines that create jobs. However, it's the slot machines that essentially generate most of the profits of a casino and make it possible to sustain these large resort casinos. My concern is that if the slot machines get distributed too broadly and too widely uh, in any market area, uh, you undercut the critical mass necessary to sustain the job creators, such as the Mohegan Suns, the Winds, the Foxwoods. And that's really where this sort of un unregulated competition may pose a long-term threat to the industry as a job creator. But isn't that exactly what the tribes in Connecticut are doing by trying to build a third casino in the state that is primarily going to be a place for people to play slots and table games and not to supply all those other jobs? They've, they've said they're trying to protect jobs in the state, but your own analysis seems to suggest that slots isn't the way to do it. Well, you have to start from the recognition that those two facilities in the state of Connecticut are going to lose jobs to MGM if they do nothing. So you're really at a position where you're trying to mitigate that job loss to the greatest extent possible. And the satellite casino doesn't, it doesn't uh, stop all of the job loss, but it mitigates the job loss. And, and it's really a mitigation strategy uh, for the state of Connecticut. It makes sense for Connecticut. It might not make sense for Massachusetts. What about the possible risks of opening up a casino to tribal operators off of tribal land? A lot of people say if you open up a casino in in East Windsor, Connecticut, it's nowhere near the Mohegan or the Mashantucket Pequot tribal regions. Should they be able to operate there? Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to be litigated in federal court. uh, And I think that litigation will favor the tribes. Uh, First, the Bureau of Indian Affairs has already issued two opinion letters to the tribes and to the state of Connecticut indicating that they don't have a problem with the arrangement that has been uh, adopted in Connecticut. Uh, Now, MGM is is litigating that, I believe, in federal court. Uh, I'm not an attorney, but my view of that is uh, Rush Gaming in Massachusetts uh, actually Uh, filed a similar lawsuit in the Massachusetts District Federal Court on very similar grounds because the Massachusetts legislation gave a special grant uh, of a license to the Mashpee Wampanoag tribe in in, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, That lawsuit was, was lost, and it was lost on appeal. I don't see any reason why the same won't happen in Connecticut since that lawsuit's very similar. We've talked a lot about capacity and whether or not the region of New England and maybe the larger Northeast has room for any more casinos. Something that we have seen is that when economic times get hard, casinos take a hit not just at the same time as everyone else, but maybe a little bit in advance. People don't want to spend their hard-earned money on gambling if indeed they're not sure that they're going to have a job moving forward. Do you think that any of the analyses of gambling capacity in the Northeast take into enough account the volatility of of America right now? The fact is, we don't know what's going to happen with the economy. Uh, Might the gambling industry change quite a bit if, if something else changes with our economy? Yeah, that's certainly a possibility. In fact, I've been critical of, of some other analysts on, on precisely that point. 
you're absolutely correct that casino gambling expenditures are one of the first things people cut back on uh, when a recession starts or sometimes just before one starts as they start to cut back on their, their discretionary spending. And it's one of the last things to recover until people feel secure again. Uh, what we did see in the, this great uh, recession that we had from about 2007 to 2010 uh, is that what we call the propensity to gamble declined quite significantly during that period of time. That means the number of people who gamble in a year declined and the amount they spend per visit declined. And it has never fully recovered since that time. The, the propensity to gamble has not yet returned to what it was at the peak of the industry in 2006. So it looks like that, that financial crisis had a long-term impact on people's propensity to gamble. And certainly I've incorporated that into my analyses because I track it on a regular basis. Uh, but it is a, a, a long-term concern that, that the industry has come back, but, but not to the extent uh, that one might have hoped if you're an industry executive. Clyde Barrow is a casino consultant. He chairs the political science department at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. Clyde, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Coming up, breeding a heartier bee for New England. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. Honeybees have been having a tough time lately. Pests and disease have plagued many hives, killing off the pollinators and forcing people looking to save the bees to get creative. Now, as WNPR's Patrick Scahill reports, one scientist in Connecticut is pinning his hopes on bee genes, tracking down honeybee survivors in hope of spreading their hardy DNA. If you've ever read Where's Waldo, you'd relate to what Richard Coles is doing today. I call it Where's Wanda. Coles is a scientist with the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. We're at Lockwood Farm in Hamden, and he's holding up a frame full of busy female worker bees looking for their master. Man, oh man, where is the queen? It's an early step in a months-long experiment, one which Coles hopes will ultimately breed stronger bees. What I am trying to do is to find as many different sources of bees that have strong hygienic traits, good survival traits, bring them together, and then have controlled mating. To do that, he's ordered queen bees from around the country and New England, places like Vermont and Massachusetts. Honeybees with superior genetics, he says, may make them better able to shake off pests and disease. But before those new queens can go into the hive, the old ones need to come out. After a few minutes of searching, his research assistant, Ellie Clark, spots the elusive Queen Wanda. Oh, wonderful. There she goes. Ooh, she's busy. She's Look fast. at her run. Look at her Lately, bees like Queen Wanda have been in trouble. State Bee Inspector Mark Creighton says for the past three years, about half of the hives in Connecticut didn't survive the winter. Some areas had significant losses and others fared very well. Those in the drought regions, uh, especially those that just came out of drought, uh, they didn't have a chance to put on adequate uh, food reserves at the end of last year. And then there's the Varroa mite. In Connecticut, Creighton says this parasite is the number one killer of bees. It feeds on them, can cripple their newborns, and also spreads disease, which honeybees can pass on to other pollinators at shared flowers. They impact our native bees, and uh, you know we want to keep all our bees healthy, not just our uh, Apis mellifera. Some of the new queens of Apis mellifera, that's honeybees, that Richard Coles is placing in the hives now are specifically bred for their resilience to Varroa. 
But he says shaking up Hive leadership is a delicate process. You can't just let her go, or they'd immediately surround her, and they'd do what's called balling her, which means to form a mass that will heat up to the inside to lethal temperature Mm -hmm. and kill her. So a queen actually gets placed into her new hive in a tiny protective box. That allows her smell to slowly mesmerize her subjects until the workers accept her. And here's where the experiment gets complicated. Like a plant breeder crossing strawberries to select for the best qualities, Coles wants to crossbreed his bees to select for the best survivor traits. Which means next summer he'll take his new virgin queens and cross their DNA with the harvested semen of lots of new male drones. The harvest has an unhappy ending. There's a weird process. You make them buzz a whole lot. And here's the sad part now. Let's see if I have the technique down. I was getting pretty good at it. You gotta start from the front of the abdomen and work your way back. And hopefully, all of a sudden, it'll go pop. I'll spare you the details, but it does. For every queen Coles inseminates in the lab, he says he'll need about 15 or 20 drones, and he'll have to keep track of them all to avoid inbreeding. From there, Coles will share his specially bred bees with beekeepers in the state to see how well they survive. One hope, he says, is that the project raises awareness of the importance of acquiring well-bred bees. But ultimately, it's not only for the beekeepers and for improved survival of honeybees, but it's also to improve the overall pollinator health in the state. Coles and State Bee Inspector Mark Creighton say they also hope to incorporate feral populations of honeybees into their breeding program, purposefully working in one more pool of strong genes, which will hopefully yield stronger bees. That's Patrick Scahill reporting. As summer rolls in, many New Englanders are hitting up their favorite swimming holes. But some kids from refugee families come from cultures where swimming isn't practiced, or it can be very dangerous. A water safety program in Vermont teaches new American children how to be safe and have fun in the water. Kathleen Masterson has her story. Head back, deep breath to do your treading water. Remember? Yes? Is it fast like this? That's Jess Lucas, the Youth and Families Coordinator at the Greater Burlington YMCA. She's teaching a class of eager third, fourth, and fifth graders. But unlike some kids their age, most of these students have never swum before, let alone seen a pool. A lot of these kids, A, there's no access to a swimming pool, no access to swim lessons, and their exposure around water, a lot of my kids, um, like when I first started working with the Somali Bantu population, those students would say to me, We never went near the water because there were crocodiles. Linda Siegel teaches in an ESL classroom. This year, all her students came to Vermont via the Refugee Resettlement Program. So my students are from, they're Somali, they're Congolese, and they're Bhutanese. Five years ago, the YMCA reached out to her school to offer a free five-day water safety course. 
Siegel jumped on the opportunity. She says because her students didn't grow up around water and don't yet speak English, they're particularly vulnerable. For the week before we come, I spend the week teaching them vocabulary. So deep end, deep water, shallow water, drown, um, blow bubbles, those kinds of vocabulary words. Siegel says this gives them familiarity so they can understand the swim instruction. They're very excited, but they're also really scared when they first arrive. And it's, we often have this scene of the girls clinging to the railings at the stairway. What was your name? Sandra. What was it like the first time? How did you feel climbing into the pool? Um, I was scared and I was nervous. Sandra shows no signs of being nervous now. She just arrived in Vermont this fall. Sandra was born in India, but then moved to a Bhutanese refugee camp in Nepal. Then she came to the U.S. But after only five classes and a little help from her teacher, she's already comfortable in the water. I'm at teacher's holding my hand and practicing with me doing that, that floating in back and swimming and doing scooping. So does your family swim like back in Nepal or India? No. No? They never touch a swimming pool. In the pool, two of her classmates are wearing what's called a burkini. It's a swimsuit with a hijab that covers the entire body. YMCA's Doug Bishop says the organization purchased those swimsuits as part of a partnership with the University of Vermont Medical Center. Some of the funds that they give us help ensure that we have bathing suits that are appropriate for some of the, the, the different religions that we serve through our new American populations, allowing the girls to have their head covered or full body covered, special swimsuits so that they can participate just like every other student in their class. Today is the last water safety lesson of the five-day course, and by their whooping enthusiasm, I'd assume they've grown up in the water. The kids have learned how to float, how to tread water, and how to help a fellow student without putting themselves at risk. And some are even beginning to learn the breaststroke with a kid-centric technique. Instructor Jess Lucas has been working with Siegel's classroom for the past five years. And she says the outreach to new Americans is working. Lucas says she sees some students from refugee families again in summer camp groups, or others will get guest passes so they can come to the Y with their families. It's an amazing program. It's my favorite week of the year. <laughs> Exhausting, but my favorite. <laughs> That's Kathleen Masterson reporting from Vermont Public Radio. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Kevin Shropshire. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston. Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.